coming up on Chopper's Politics. Charles Walker frothing at the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in politics, but we're not getting the best people anymore. How we, do you get the best? Sh- I don't know how we do it. It's your last interview but on this podcast. Look, I'm getting overexcited. The coffee's kicking in. Hello and welcome to the Red Line Pub in Westminster. I'm Christopher Hope, Chopper to my pals, the associate editor for politics at The Telegraph, and this is Chopper's Politics Podcast. This week, we are considering the big existential questions of our age, rights and freedoms. Tory MP Miriam Cates is with us to discuss what she thinks conservatism should mean in modern day politics. And we have Andy McSmith, political journalist for four decades standing on his encounters with the big beasts of Westminster. But first, Sir Charles Walker, the Tory MP for Broxbourne, is quitting Parliament after 19 years. And he's got a few things to get off his chest first about the overreach of government and why our politicians today don't measure up to those of the past. Sir Charles Walker, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you for having me. First time, I think, in person in the Redline pub. It is. You're leaving Parliament, aren't you, of course? I am. Why? Because I would have done it probably for over 19 years. That's not a reason to leave. And I think I've said to you before, you've got to want to do it 110%, and I'm only wanting to do it at 99%, and my constituents deserve a shiny new Member of Parliament. I, I think hope. you're one of the great parliamentarians of your generation, I think, because you have always got a distinct position on so many important things, I think, which go outside of normal party politics, which makes you so interesting, I think. Let's take, for example, the issue of authoritarian overreach by the state. Yeah, my initial concerns. The, the, uh, that's we're, about we're, we're, protests. We're during lockdown when yes. we repeatedly criminalised protest. I always thought protest was a right, and I don't think you can criminalise a right. That's what I thought. So what we did during uh, the two years of COVID was we criminalised protest, and that was supported by the Labour Party. And your colleagues. And my colleagues. And a few of us raised the alarm and said, why, this was probably not a good idea. It would lead to greater authoritarianism down the road, because governments (laughs) would always try and get away with as much as they can. And that morphed into the public order bill, where we were going to ankle tag people who'd not been convicted of any crime, so they could be tracked around the country. And I'm afraid we saw that on Saturday during the coronation. Those now, arrests, the, the arrests in, in Trafalgar Square. Now, yes. I think unfolding a banner saying, not my king, which, by the way, he is their king. They should have said, make him the last king. I mean, whether they like it or not, he is their king. But they don't accept the but, monarch. But, That's but, the point. But, 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 their truth is he's not their king. But... but <laughs> The reality is that he is. But anyway, (laughs) I'd have that argument with them. But I do think um, making noise and unfolding a banner, it it might create a distraction for those around. It might have been very irritating, but I'm afraid in free societies, you have to accept that and get on with it. I've also made it clear I have absolutely no time for the people who sit in front of ambulances and fire engines. But there are multiple multiple laws dating back to, I think, 1866 that the police could enforce to remove those people. So this is this typical political reaction, and it's the something-must-be-done reaction. Instead of actually going back and looking what's, what, what laws could are be on the statute and why and asking why they're not being enforced, you create a new lo- law to sort of demonstrate your political machismo. And you can't stand that? I can't. I hate it. It's, it's nonsense. It's bad. It's bad politics. And it's bad lawmaking, more importantly. Some of the arrests in Westminster were required. We've had justification from Sir Mark Rowley, who's the Met Police Chief Commissioner, talking about rape alarms and loud hailers to startle the horses and these concerns. Look, look, what, I, I'm not saying that some of the arrests weren't justified. What I'm saying is it is 
absolutely not justified to bundle away people who are unfurling a banner and wanted to shout a bit. That's that's we are slipping into authoritarianism and people keep making exceptions. Ah, oh, yes, but in this case. Mm. Where's that come from? I think back to the, the noughties when Tony Blair was pushing for 90-day detention yeah. for terrorists, then 45-day, then 28-day. Yeah. The Tories oppose that, as opposition should do. Now we're in a Tory government passing the anti-lock-on laws and, and the rest of it. Is, it. is it that just being in government for a long time creates this authoritarian streak in governments? Is that right? Or is it is it all just power-hungry politicians wanting to lock down populations? Well, what, what government discovered during COVID is the public quite liked authoritarianism and warmed to it. Mm. Um, and I think that... So that's your that, other step that, then, that, Charles Walker. That, that troubles me greatly. That so, troubles me So greatly. are you out of step then with what, what the population um, wants? The population want to lock me up, says the population, just, just because, Charles Walker says, I want to set you free. Just because I'm in the minority doesn't mean I'm wrong. I've learned that in politics. Mm. I remember when we voted to take military action in Libya. There were 620-odd colleagues in one division. 2013? I, I can't remember what it was. And there was John Barron and two other people in the No Lobby. You know how we laughed at them. Well, mm. I learned a very valuable lesson. Just because you're in the division lobby with the most people in the House of Commons doesn't mean you're right. I've, I'm more than happy to defend my position in regards to protests. A lot of people don't like it. Quite a few people do. Um, we pick our battles, and I pick my battles around COVID. Bluntly, at the end of that two years, um, I'm pretty sure that two years accelerated my departure from from the, from from the House of Commons. Why I, is that? I, you I, was, I, was, I was I was I was disappointed. I was disappointed in 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 how we behaved. We didn't interrogate the science enough. Around lockdowns, I was disappointed about how behavioural psychologists were allowed to wage warfare on the population of this country. Psychological warfare. Psychological warfare. I spoke about this. We have many young people, many people severely damaged by what we did. And we talk about parity of esteem between physical health and mental health. And actually, we licensed almost warfare, mental warfare on large parts of the population, telling young people needs, if they saw their granny, needs, they would be responsible for killing them. If the government them. were here, needs must. No, they... No, look. So, so you're trying to save lives, you're trying to change yep. behaviours in short yep. order, quick time. You're, you know, look at this face, do you want to kill her, was one of the adverts. So, so after, which was absolutely appalling. So after six weeks, I totally understand the first lockdown. When we knew at the end of the first lockdown when the data started coming through that this disease basically in the main targeted old people and people with underlying health conditions we could have had a far more nuanced and focused approach to how we handled the illness i have made that argument would it have saved every life of course it would not but the government's approach didn't save every life as well and we are now living with long-term consequences to that there are criminologists in america for example who believe that there will be a spike in the prison population when unsocialized children and children lost to the system start turning 18 and that's the that's the long-term legacy yeah, the long-term legacy what was your reaction in our in the telegraph lockdown file disclosures when that remark from matt hancock that the, i think someone around him saying they want to frighten the pants off people uh, just look i wrote about this in the telegraph people can find it i spoke about it in the chamber i spoke about it in a measured thoughtful and reflective way in the main yes sometimes my emotions got the better of me but in the main I try to make structured and thoughtful arguments around where our response to COVID could potentially take us to. 
Now, the, 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 the pint of milk being a case in point. Explain that again to listeners briefly. You, you, you held the pint of milk in the chamber because... Because you don't need a reason to protest. Protest is a right. So I just said, I'm going to protest about the milk. price of a pint of milk. But at the end, I said, protest is a right, not a freedom. And when it becomes a freedom, as it now is, you need to defend it every day. You need to cherish it every day. Otherwise, it can be taken away from you. And that is what we're beginning to see. How can we change this approach? I mean, you're, you're an MP. I mean, you're, you're, I know you're leaving Parliament, but you are an MP in the governing party. So what the, can you do? So the police only do what we, what we tell them to do. We're politicians. This isn't a problem with the police. It's a problem with politicians. As I said, there are numerous laws that could have been deployed against stop oil activists, and they weren't. Some of these date back to mid-1800s. We've got to stop writing and creating laws in response to a headline or in a response to an immediate problem. And we've actually got to look at what we have on the statute book and, and, and deploy those, those laws. Stop feeling you have to do stuff. And that's driven by social media. I know you're not on social media in any, any sense, Charles Walker, because your phone is Nokia 3210, which I love. But, um, and you can play Snake on it, can't you? Yeah. But you don't look at Twitter. The idea of, I've got Andy, Andy McSmith on my podcast today, who's a legendary lobby journalist, um, I'll be asking him if he thinks the quality of politicians has declined. Do you think in your time, your 20, 19 years as MP, the quality of colleagues has declined? Well, I would find it very difficult in answer to that question. I would find it very difficult to go and speak to a group of successful young men and women in their 30s and 40s, say partners of law firms, accountancy firms, maybe doing really well in, in the healthcare system and say, actually, you need to give up all of that to go into the uncertain world of politics. I would find it very difficult to make that argument because there is certainly now a career penalty for almost all people. For a career become, penalty? A career penalty for becoming a member of parliament. Explain that. Well, so so once you've been a member of parliament, there seems to be this growing gap because we've turned politics into a profession, not a vocation. There is a growing gap between being a member of parliament and just the public world of work, for example. So people think once you've been a member of parliament, you've been de-skilled, you've been institutionalised. And actually, because careers move on so quickly, even when you come back to your career after five or 10 years, you know, you've lost ground, significant ground to your peer group. Now, of course, there are many skills that MPs pick up, uh, negotiation, dispute resolution, so on and so forth. But we fail to, to help colleagues capture that so actually when you leave here it is very difficult for most to pick up where you left off so lots of people looking in really bright talented people thinking well why would I want to go into politics for the next 10 or 15 years when actually I could succeed um, to a far greater level in my own organization and there's this huge world out there of opportunity why would I want to limit my opportunities by being a member of parliament where um, I would deal with a thousand emails a week Nobody really interested in what I've got to say. And, um, you know, actually it's pretty miserable it, for those that I love. Is it, is it boring when people, because people talk to you, they want, to, they want you to listen to them, don't they? Oh, I, I mean, I've they talked, don't really care what you say. I mean, I, it's they, so funny. I've you're talked, a sponge. I've talked to journalists who've, who've occasionally mentioned that they might be interested in, in going into politics. And I say to those journalists, when you go out for a dinner party, you will almost always the most interesting person in the room who people want to talk to. When you become a member of parliament, nobody is remotely interested in what you think. They just want to tell you what they think. <laughs> It's extraordinary. And you see the blood draining from these journalists' face and they think, actually, I might stay in journalism after all. <laughs> to argue against you, though, Charles, 
Um, you have got Rishi, Rishi Sunak, who could be earning many times his salary of 150000 a year outside of politics. You've got Jeremy Hunt, who's a, a successful entrepreneur yeah. who could be doing, who do, do very well outside. On the flip side, you've got Keir Starmer, who would be a very well-paid KC. And also, finally, you have got a long... Huge tale of people, a thousand people who want to be MPs but, on both the Tory and Labour side. So you say, I take what you say, and you, you talk. I can argue that you, you on that. Well, tell but, me, but tell they, me, tell me more, because these are good people. They, they, they are very good people, but but the talent thins out very quickly below them. Let's be honest; it really does. The talent thins out very, very quickly. Politics now is is largely performative. Now, I don't want... There are really nice people in politics. There really are people who are, who are there for all the right reasons. But are they the great brains that we need to solve ever more complex problems? No, because we can't attract those people How many people of today's cabinet could make it into Thatcher's uh, cabinet? Uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not going to get into that, but um, Heseltine, Cecil Parkinson, Lawson... Uh, let Leon Britton. Let, let let's let's be clear about this. Um, Margaret Thatcher was 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 surrounded by intellectual giants, and because politics was where the action was at, it's not where the action's at now. Where is the action the, now? The action is now. You can be a leading global businessman attending Davos, for example. Which, by the way, Davos makes me feel physically <laughs> ill to watch those people. Poncing around on stage. I believe in politics, but we're not getting the best people anymore. How we, do you get the best? I don't know how we do it. It's your last interview but, on this podcast. Look, I'm getting overexcited. The coffee's kicking in. Regulating politicians to death, making it more and more a profession rather than a vocation. All those things are guaranteed. So you're saying all those things are guaranteed to drive good people even further to away. Stop from betting it. expenses. No, it's, it's let it all run, it's, it's, let it's, rip. It's, it's Claim nothing, what you like. Duck houses. Let's it's go. It's nothing. It's not. It's nothing. It's nothing to do. It's nothing to do with that. But seriously, all we are is now superannuated uh, citizens' advice uh, bureaus. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm. I got elected not to represent Parliament in Broxbourne. I got elected to represent Broxbourne in Parliament, for the love of God. Not to have my constituency office in a high street in some town in Broxbourne, but to have my staff in Parliament. Yeah, we have all these bright, talented young people come to us who want to be legislative assistants. They may have watched reruns of The West Wing. I don't want anybody writing legislation for me anymore. I want them answering emails. They're like battery hens, just answering emails about potholes, swimming pools. God knows These what. things matter to people, They Charles. might matter to people, but actually running the country should matter to people. We've got the threat of AI coming down the road. We all know about climate change. We've got to get the economy growing. We've got to get back to a trend growth rate of 2 2.5%. These are the things that really matter to people. Let me say this, Chris. Yes. The problem with being a member of parliament is, is you end up through the prism of your email inbox working for 2,000 people. The vast majority of your constituents are getting on with their life, working hard, getting up in the morning, and they're the people we need to remember. Don't you do both, though? Don't you also, you deal with the potholes, you deal with the entities waiting this, you deal with a neighbour dispute, but you also deal with the big stuff, the AI, the wars breaking out, no, and the rest no, of No, it. no, trust me, and you've done this long enough to know the answer to your question. Most politicians now are completely absorbed by local matters. I mean, I would get it if we didn't have district councillors, county councillors, unitary authority councillors. you say to but people, we've got all, this is a council issue. But that requires courage. And actually, that requires the confidence that when you do pass it over to a councillor, it gets dealt with. Yeah, But this is something the 
the the country our constituents should be clamoring for for crying out loud not something i should be breaking to them as so news why are you leaving house of commons but, charles walker the final question because as my wife said she's bored of being married to an angry man there's <laughs> got to be something out there yeah i look i've look i've i've never been a minister i've had a super duper time i i love it i love parliament i actually despite what i say i love members of parliament they need to be better represented so actually when i leave I hope to be given the chance by a think tank or something to make the case for members of parliament in the hope that actually when people say we need better members of parliament, one of the answer is, OK, well, let's treat MPs better to see if we can get to that point. You know, the ritual humiliation of your representatives is not a good look if you want to get better people. Well, on that note, Charles Walker, the very best of luck in your time after leaving Parliament. And thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Sir Charles Walker there. And do you agree with Charles? Do you think we get the wrong type of politicians and could do better in our public life? Do email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet me. We're at Chopper's Podcast. Now, next week, senior Tories, including cabinet ministers, will be gathering for a new conference discussing what it means to be conservative. And in a week when the Tory government has nationalised another railway and dropped plans to axe EU laws, some might say this is not before time. One of the speakers will be Miriam Cates, elected Tory MP for Penison and Stocksbridge in the Red Wall in 2019 and tipped by some as a possible future leader of the Conservative Party. Miriam Cates, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. There's a big um, conference next week called NatCon, isn't there? Now, what is NatCon? Well, NatCon, I think, started in America, but it has branches around the world. And it's really a recognition of the fact that conservatism has perhaps strayed away from its core values. And I suppose that was really encapsulated in the realignments that we saw here in 2016 and 2019, but other parts of the Western world have really seen as well, where small C conservatives have kind of joined together with, you know, new new conservative voters in industrial areas, in areas that have had economic decline. That's the red wall, the Red Wall have voted together with traditional Conservatives and that whilst we have seen this realignment across the world, it hasn't really been capitalised on anywhere. I mean, you could say, you know, maybe some parts of America, some American states have kind of mm. lent that way, but we certainly haven't lent into the realignment enough in this country. And NatCon is, um, you know, really a recognition of that and a, an attempt to explore what Conservatism looks like for the 21st century. And is it is it family values? Is it is it the term woke wars? What is it? Well, there's a whole range of speakers. Um, what do you think it is? Some of whom I've case. never heard of, but and you're I a don't speaker. know what they're going to speak. So yes, so what I really I haven't finished writing my speech yet, so this may completely change by next week. But what I really want to explore is the link between cultural and social values and economic values. And I think sometimes as politicians, we are expected only to speak about the economy. And of course, the economy is very important. But then when you talk about social or cultural issues, you're labelled as a culture warrior or someone who's on a moral crusade. Whereas I think they're actually inextricably linked. If you want a strong economy, you have to have strong families. And so you can't pretend that the state should have no interest in how families work. So, And the Tories have been quite half-hearted on that. I remember 
remember David Cameron did a kind of a family check on all government policies, and, and it was meant to be a kind of a review of it had to be family friendly check on, and that all fell apart. And then there was a marriage tax allowance that is is so complicated that very few people even take it up now, don't they? That's right. I mean, it's utterly half hearted, and the situation for families in this country economically is very disadvantageous compared to many other countries in the world. I mean, that our tax system doesn't recognise families at all, and, and it puts, should do, and it should do because if you want a strong economy in the future, if you want to to grow and nurture the kind of children and young adults that become the workers and the leaders and the entrepreneurs of the future, then you have to have a firm foundation. And, you know, we know so much about the impact of the early years mm. and what happens to you if you have a bad experience in those early years. And yet we don't follow that through with policies that help those early years to be more secure. Well, what kind of tax breaks should be out there for families? Well, I think at the very least, we ought to have household taxation rather than individual taxation. So at the moment, let's say your next door neighbours are a couple without children and they both earn £49,000 a year let's say they pay basic rate tax they probably have lots of lower bills because they don't have children next door you've got I don't know dad on on 80000 mum doesn't earn because she looks after kids she looks after elderly relatives they pay high rate tax they lose all their child benefit they have all the costs of raising children that seems a basic unfairness and I think we don't talk about that enough in this country we don't realise what an mm. outlier we are in how unfriendly our tax system is uh, to families but it's just things like that i mean they're not going to make all the difference in the world so you could group the family income into one yes into one and then get double the tax breaks exactly and to recognize that having children is an investment in society and i think one of the things we've done through our tax system and through our social policies is to basically say having children is a is a private enterprise you know only do it if you can afford it we're not going to help you it's your it's your responsibility it's a luxury you know having children is a luxury but actually having children is is absolutely essential for the future of our society and bringing them up well why shouldn't the tax system recognize the investment that you're making in society just 30 years hence we're looking at just two working age people to every pensioner. I mean, if you think taxes are high now, if you think the NHS is underfunded now, you haven't seen what's coming down the line. And this is where social and economic policy have to go hand in hand. And as Conservatives, we cannot be afraid of talking about social and cultural issues because they have such a big impact on the economy and vice versa. And I think it's a mistake for politicians to only speak about one of the two sides of the so coin. So you're starting to move on from Thatcherism, do you think, in the Tory party? thinking. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, would be so bold as to say that Thatcherite economics are not truly conservative. Because, you know, in my part of the world, in South Yorkshire, in in Stocksbridge, in a steel town, Thatcherism destroyed our local economy. And we haven't recovered because the good, secure, high status jobs that the steel industry and the coal industry provided have not been replaced with anything. And you can look at overall economic growth across, you know, looking at the country, but it's a completely different story in the north and in the regions to it is in London it hasn't been fairly spread community has to have an economic engine it's not just about nice high yep. streets and and volunteers doing nice things for each other you know industries like the steelworks didn't just build the means of employment they built the sports club and the golf club and the you know the housing even it was the economic engine of the community that has been lost how is the Tory party at the moment your party lost over a thousand council seats last week what does your PM need to do next Well, I think it's very difficult to draw any theory of everything conclusions from local election results. Why can't we? We're in a pub. Well, I just think there are so many local factors in local elections, as well as turnout and things like that. And, you know, on a vote share, Labour underperformed their poll ratings. But 
I do think one of the issues, as I said earlier, is we haven't lent in enough to this realignment. You know, on the doorsteps, when I was knocking on doors in Stocksbridge, which is, you know, a landlocked town in the middle of England, what was the issue that came up again and again? Small boats. You haven't yet sorted out the small boats. You know, these issues are really big to people still. And I think people can see we're trying, but they want to see proof of the pudding. So I think we need to really lean into those kind of cultural and economic concerns that people have. I think Rishi is on the right track. I mean, he's being very bold on the social and cultural issues that I really care about. He's absolutely well, sex, right. Sex education. Exactly. What other political leader has been bold enough to speak about those things and to commit to sorting them out? Uh, he's not been in the job long, but I think he absolutely is leaning in the right direction, especially on immigration and things like that. So it really is early days in his leadership. And I wish we had longer, but we don't. And that's why we need to be very bold and very decisive about leaning into the voters who voted yeah. for us last time. Labour's um, attacking the, the choice now over the 12 years they've been in government, fair enough. What is the single biggest achievement of that 12 years in power, do you think? Well, I don't think we've seen the fruit of it yet, but I will say Brexit. And I know that Brexit is not as popular as it was, but I think when we look back in history, the act of actually managing to leave the EU will be seen as a significant achievement. And the irony like, was that wasn't party policy. It wasn't. It became you know, policy. It, it was accepted <laughs> reluctantly, I suppose. Um, and I voted Remain at the time. I was had three under sevens and I wasn't interested at all in, you know, in politics. But, but I totally accept that we have not seen the benefits of it yet. But I do think we will. And I think if you look at the EU as a whole and the issues around democracy and transparency and, and relevance, we will come to see that as a defining moment. The Brexit was a, was a power transfer, wasn't it, from the P, from people saying to politicians, we're taking, taking it away from the EU and giving it to you in Westminster. And there's a sense that the people in Westminster, the officials, MPs, whoever, haven't really grasped the opportunity given to them by the people in 2016. No, absolutely. And it's the kind of, when you're buying a house, you, you exchange contracts before you move <laughs> in. And I feel like we're at the point where we've exchanged. You know, the intent has happened, the legal manoeuvres have taken place, but we've not moved in yet. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's how it feels. And, you know, and of course that's going to take a long time because of the number of years that we've been inextricably linked with the EU. But we have got to get going on the positives of it and part of that is about sovereignty and democracy but it's also about the real life impacts of things like well you know changing VAT thresholds and the things that affect ordinary people's lives using those freedoms that the, the exactly. people have been given exactly. you held your seat in Penison and Stockbridge with 7,210 7, majority I won my seat in 2019 how will you hold that? by staying true to the issues that people elected me and the party for and I think as an MP it's always tempting to think that it's about you it's not about you people vote for it's the party it's a bit party. about you it's a bit but, but I think you know really this is about speaking up for and championing the issues that ordinary people elected us for in 2019 and staying grounded in that staying grounded in that and, and levelling up you know people laugh at the phrase levelling up and perhaps it wasn't the best choice of words but my constituents know what understand what that means on a kind of emotional level which is we just don't don't have the opportunities, uh, the economic security that other parts of the country have, and that's what we need. Now, you've got some fans in the party. Bill Cash tells me you've got a heart of gold and a spine of steel because of your, your work on, on, on women's rights and 
on online porn and the rest of it. I mean, how do you feel when you have like Bill Cash, the ultimate really grand old man of the party, saying that about you? Well, honoured and humbled, to be honest. And I'm also a massive admirer of him and, and working with him closely on the online safety bill as we have and learning from him about, you know, not just the issues, but how Parliament works and how we can change the law and how to gather colleagues' support has just been an incredible privilege and a real education. And he absolutely is a grandee of the party and, and what he's achieved over the years is phenomenal. So it is, he's you know, a pro, isn't he? it is. And, and it is one of the best parts of this job, the people that you get to, to meet and work with and learn from. People think of Parliament as quite a fractious place to work and everybody's at each other. So it's not like that at all. Uh, it's very collaborative, or it can be. Some people tell me you are a future Tory leader. Well, I've not done very well so far, have I, Chris? <laughs> I think I'm probably the only, only 2019 and not to have even been a PPS, probably. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're independent. You're, you, you know your own mind, but you're getting your fan base. Would you ever be leader of the party? Well, if I can win this, my seat the next <laughs> time, ask me again. But I mean... I've only been a party member fewer than five years. You know, I, I were you a member before that of a different party or not? No, all? actually, I think I joined the Labour Party when I was seventeen. But I was trying to remember for a year when you know when Blair came in, and I suppose I've got a different perspective to people who've been doing this for a long time because you know my life has been relatively ordinary, rooted in you know my local community, stay-at-home mom, you know all the kind of normal issues that, right. that people face, and I suppose I see things quite differently to people who've been involved in the party since they were nineteen and knocking on and being spads not that there's anything wrong with that at all you need the different levels of experience but you know I suppose that's what motivates me to speak out about these issues even when they're not necessarily the party line because you know this is what my life was like before this is what it's going to be like again these are the issues that really affect normal people and you know I think sometimes the Westminster bubble has a totally different take I'll give you an example when I talk about things like childcare and some mums actually wanting to be at home with their children you know people in Westminster go oh you can't say that if you go down my constituency and say that everybody's like, yeah of course absolutely you know well, the, these these points of view are not particularly astounding outside of london well the, the, the budget talked about more money for childcare. there's no more money for stay-at-home mums no was that wrong it's absolutely wrong i i can't think of a policy that has been announced during the last three years that i've been more upset about to be to be quite honest and I, i've got to be honest Why i did actually shed a tear on a government <laughs> minister the day it was announced because it is well it's utterly unconservative the idea that the role of a parent the role of a mother is to get back to work and contribute to gdp and that you can somehow outsource that you know unbreakable bond to institutional childcare, as brilliant as those care workers may be no one can replace mum and there's you know plenty of evidence that suggests that some external childcare from the age of three can be helpful for cognitive development of course it can we know that three-year-olds need to be socialized but there's very little evidence of any positive benefits for very small babies and in fact there's quite a lot of evidence about the negative impacts of things like the rise in stress hormones in babies that have a long time away from their mothers that has permanent impacts on things like adhd and behavioural difficulties and attachment and ability to regulate your emotions. These are known about phenomena. How can we as a government say it's fine to put your child in 30 hours a week of state childcare, get back to work? It's utterly unconservative and it will be disastrous. Is, is there a bias because people talking about it are often people who have their kids in care? So the voices to describe in a policy are ones who support it and are used to it, whereas maybe the audience for it don't really accept it. Yes, I think that's that's part of it. But I also think that these policies are made by people who live in this metropolitan liberal bubble. And 
it's very difficult, it seems to me, for those people to understand that for most people, their whole lives does not revolve around economics. This is what we saw in Brexit. How can you vote for something that makes you poorer? Well, it's not about that. It's actually about something much deeper than, you know, is my monthly bank balance going to change? And I think for people with very important careers, careers that give them status and recognition and respect and money, men and women, they don't understand how people would take the hit on income to spend more time with their children. But that is actually the normal human experience. But that's not really understood around here. And so I think the policies are made by people who can't imagine anyone choosing that emotional connection over economic success. So it's time to celebrate stay-at-home mums. Absolutely. And let's re- remember, stay-at-home mums don't stay at home. It's a term that everybody understands. I don't have a problem with it. But, you know, they are not just looking after their own children. They are building the foundations of community. And they're building foundations of the future. Well, Miriam Cates, one of the star speakers at NatCon next week. Thank you for joining us this week on a busy morning for Chopper's Politics Podcast in Redland Pub. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Miriam Cates there. Right, do stay with us, listeners. You're about to hear from a journalist who once worked for Robert Maxwell, Tony Blair, and um, the Daily Telegraph. Oh, and he met a Beatle in San Francisco. Right after this. Nigel Farage. This is the most commonest thing done by any government in my lifetime in this country. Lionel Shriver. Which is worse... Biden's not being in control and Biden being in control. (laughs) Charles Moore. I think if people in general feel that their traditions, culture, history, values, etc. are under assault, they are basically right. My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like Off Script, a new series from The Telegraph. Provocative conversations with provocative individuals. Each episode, I sit down with a world-leading commentator to unpick the ongoing culture wars. Unfiltered, unscripted, and full of free speech. Be sure to listen to Offscript in the same place you're listening to this, and make sure to follow so you don't miss an episode. Now, listeners, you might think I've been around Westminster since the dawn of time. Certainly, my producer, Louisa Wells, thinks so. But someone who's been lurking in the corridors of power even longer is veteran lobby journalist Andy McSmith. He's got a new book out, a memoir called Strange People I Have Known, looking back on his 40 years of covering politics and Westminster. And he joins me now in the Red Lion pub. Andy McSmith, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on. Now, I reckon you've been coming here more than longer than I have in the Red Lion pub. <laughs> when, when was your first pint? In the Red Lion, probably in 1984. Right. It still um, smell the same? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 40 um, years ago. <laughs> uh, the most dramatic thing I ever did that involved the Red Lion was I very nearly got um, Gordon Brown's spin doctor, Charlie Whelan, sacked. Did you? Because... There was a day when Gordon Brown had given an interview to the Times in which he said the UK would not join a single currency during the life of that parliament. That was 98 or so. Yeah, about then, yeah. Mm. And um, he hadn't told Tony Blair what he was going to say. And somebody rang up, Alistair Campbell, who then rang up Tony and said, Gordon's given an interview, I don't know what he said. So Blair had to ring Gordon Brown to say, what have you told the Times? And... I couldn't get through to him because he was on a train. So he was reduced to ringing Charlie Whelan, who he couldn't stand anyway. Mm. 
And it's quite possible that Charlie wasn't as deferential as he should be when the Prime Minister is ringing you. Mm. And that Sunday I wrote in The Observer that Charlie Whelan had been overheard barking out details of Labour policy in the Red Lion. Were you the source of that story? Yes. That's incredible. And Blair exploded. And he demanded, he went on to Gordon Brown, demanded that Charlie Whelan be sacked. And Charlie was very angry with me because he said he wasn't in the red line. He was in the street just outside. <laughs> Gosh, well, well, this is why we're in the red line, pub listeners. You've got a book out called Strange People I Have Known, which is your recollections over 50 years as a journalist. I mean, I've, you know, you, you predate my time in lobby by some years. You really have seen everyone. I was enjoyed reading about Margaret Thatcher. You found her smaller than you, than you thought. Yes. And um, you met Edward Heath and uh, you found him interesting. Interesting. Uh, he was a character. He really was. I mean, he was so egotistical. There was something rather sort of lovable about him. He was like a sort of teddy bear that had no thoughts for anybody except himself. And as you know, he, he never forgave Thatcher for her presuming to run against him for the Tory leadership. He couldn't cope with the idea that there was a woman running the Tory party. Mm. And in 1998, William Hague had this great idea that he would seat Thatcher and Heath side by side yes. on the platform. Uniting at, the party. Yes, at the Tory party conference. And um, so they've got these chairs in and Heath saw the chairs on, saw a picture of them and thought they were awful. And he was going around with his advisor, Mike McManus, complaining about how dreadful these chairs were. And it finally, uh, they went into some side room and there were Heath and Thatcher in the room together. These were people who hadn't spoken to each other <laughs> for 22 years. And Thatcher rather graciously got up and said, Oh, Ted, have you seen these awful chairs they want us to sit on? And he just went, Can't see what's wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> he just changed his position on the chairs just to annoy her. I mean, your, your time as a journalist, you started off in local papers, didn't you? Yeah. And you, you worked you, you, the old-fashioned route in, into Fleet Street was through local papers, like me, actually. I, I did something quite unusual, which is I got fed up with local papers and just walked out without a job to go to, which was not a clever thing to do. A few years later, I got a job in the Labour Party press office. Mm. And unusually, I was spotted there by the Daily Mirror and recruited. I, I, I know of nobody else who's ever gone from the Labour Party press office into the lobby. They go the other way, don't they? Mm. Often journalists are hired from the lobby to go to the Labour Yes, but, they don't, the, but the traffic in the opposite direction is, is there's very little of it. And, and, you, and, you, and you survived, didn't you? And you joined the Telegraph in the turn of the century. I did. You met my colleague Charles Moore. In fact, he hired you. He did, because he was worried that the Telegraph was full of experts on the Conservative Party. <laughs> but it wasn't really their time then, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Even the Telegraph was going to have to accept there was going to be a Labour government for quite a while yet. <laughs> so I was called in. And what Charles said to me was, I want somebody who knows the Labour Party who is not part of the Blair gang. Mm. And I certainly qualified on the second of those. And well, I'd worked for the Labour Party, so I suppose I knew a bit about that as well. Yeah, yes, yes. And he was a, a fair editor, was he? Uh, well, I thought he was brilliant because what he said when he hired me was, there will be trouble about this appointment. But as long as you do your job, it won't land in your lap. And there were a couple of occasions when... He was, well, the paper was under a lot of pressure. One of them was because a guy who just left the Conservative Central Office rather mischievously rang me up and said, do you know 
William Hague and Michael Portillo, who as you know were leader and shadow chancellor, hate each other. Well, that wasn't news. He said, well, I can tell you that Hague has made up his mind that if he does well enough to survive as leader after the election, he's going to move Portillo to a lesser job and he's going to sack Francis Maud, who was Portillo's ally. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, this is a bit dynamite. And he's obviously... Yeah. He's obvi- this guy's obviously making as much trouble as he can because the fact he rang me, not somebody else on the Telegraph, indicated he was up to something. So I rang Charles who, and I told him all this. And Charles said, well, just write what you know and don't speculate. So I wrote it like that. <laughs> uh, and that evening, the night editor got a furious call from Seb Coe, if you remember. Yes, this. of course, his chief of staff. Yes, who said, William Hay is standing by me he's prepared to come on the phone and deny this on the record uh, we want it removed from the paper so the night editor rang Charles and said what do I do and Charles said you will leave the story in exactly as it is and you'll tell them that if they want to if you will comment we'll put it at the bottom of the story <laughs> and I, I thought that was astonishing because a lot yeah. of other editors would have just given in yeah. under that sort of pressure and he backed you completely I mean that's all you want as, as a reporter yeah. when you take on these, these big powerful politicians yes and, and you um, I was fascinated as a Beatles fan that you're, you're in San Francisco where you saw George Harrison at Haight-Ashbury that's extraordinary <laughs> I, yeah I mean, I, that's extraordinary there, well there aren't many people who can boast this there aren't many there aren't <laughs> not, not many true. Brits because mainly I mean but when I was 19 I went to I bought a plane ticket and bought what you could get in those days was a $99.99 day Greyhound bus ticket, mm. which meant I could go anywhere by Greyhound bus and got myself to San Francisco. And I wanted to go to Haight-Ashbury, which was famous across the world as the, the nerve center of, of hippiedom. Mm. So I just followed a couple of hippies to see where they were going and ended up in Haight-Ashbury. And it was amazing. I mean, the place was completely overrun with kids with long hair and it was all peace and love and people sitting cross-legged on the pavement you couldn't have driven a car <laughs> down there and then there was this sudden movement in the in the crowd waves of people started going in the same direction and i thought you know something's happening well, something's happening so i went to the front of the crowd and looked and there was george harrison <laughs> wow. being mobbed by hippies yeah yeah and looking quite uncomfortable yeah yeah he wrote he said later it was an uncomfortable period and no he didn't like it very much and actually i agree with him i think it was all a bit phony he, he thought you know yeah, yeah. there would be something sort of deeply spiritual going yeah, on yeah, there yeah, yeah. it was actually a bunch of kids yeah. showing off to each other yeah quite Listen, uh, this book's incredible i'm trying to ask about your view of your modern day many people say to me that they, 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 they lament the quality of politician has got worse. Do you think that's right? Um, yes. I, I know it's um, common to think that the people you remember when you were young mm. were giants. Because the, the, people because the police get younger and we get older, basically. Yeah, that, that sort of thing. But no, I think even the line for that, the quality of politicians is definitely on the way down. And I think the difference is the generation that included Enoch Powell, Margaret Thatcher, Dennis Healy... Harold Wilson, Tony Benn, the rest of them. These were people who were actually interested in the question of how do you run the country Mm. and how do you solve these problems. And I'm afraid that nowadays you get leading practitioners who are just not that interested in it. They're just, their interest is how do you get through an interview on the Today programme without Mm. getting caught. Um, I don't mean that there's nobody in Parliament who's interested in the way that things are run, but 
I can name people who in the old days would never, never have reached very high office. I mean, I remember talking to Douglas Hurd once about Yes Minister. And Douglas Hurd said, and I thought rightly, that a man as daft as the central character in Yes Minister might bluff his way into the cabinet, but he wouldn't last, and he certainly wouldn't get to be Prime Minister. I'm afraid these days you can't say that with confidence. No, that's right. You can imagine that character, the Paul Eddington character being Prime Minister, can't you? Yeah, if he, if he could handle the telly he, the, you know, and, and knew, knew how to make all the right noises to appeal to his party activists, he'd be there. And what, what do you blame, looking back over your 40, 50 years of covering this Westminster politics, what's prompted this, this kind of abandonment of, well, of quality people? That's partly, in politics? partly it's actually a positive thing. Things have settled down. The, the future of the country is not generally at stake. I mean, if you imagine... Yes, Cold War, you mean. And yeah, uh, and also, you know, if you, you know, if you live through the austerity of the 50s, you, you might well wonder, what is going to happen? Can this country survive? Because it was very, very serious. But I also think that the sheer volume of media means that... So social media means that they're more familiar with people and, and different skills are required to get to the top. That's right. Uh, uh, you, ne- uh, you know, you need to be able to communicate with the public in a very simple terms so you're a pr person yes for and the it government rather than being a decision maker yeah, and it doesn't really matter whether there's anything behind it because you know if you're prime minister you're not these days you're not selected by your fellow mps and we've had a number well, of you pu- are you are with faith case of racing that yes yeah. well, <laughs> really but, but remember you remember with the labor party there was a vote of no competence in jeremy corbyn in which it was 80 20 mm. So four-fifths of the Labour MPs were saying that this man was not equipped to lead the Labour Party. There was nothing they could do about it, mm. because that is the rule. Yes. And there's no way that you can imagine that if MPs had the sole vote and were looking at their colleagues and their real mm. capacity to run the country, that they would have chosen mm. Boris Johnson or Liz Truss. Who would you name today, then, who are the ones who, who do pass muster? The McSmith test. Uh, in which party do you want me to go for? <laughs> <laughs> Tories and Labour? Well, I mean, I hate to say this because I'm an old Labour supporter, but I think that Rishi Sunak is a guy who does actually want to solve problems. Mm-hmm. I think the same is true of Keir Starmer, though he is not by nature a politician. Mm. Um, a technocrat. Yes. So he, he wants to be given a brief, but he wants the brief to be good and he wants the results to be good. Um, I think his shadow chancellor, Rachel Rees, is very good indeed. And I think, you know, the current chancellor is mm. good. I, I mean, the current Tory cabinet is in many ways better than the previous one. So there are certain individuals that I don't think should be operating at that level. Mm. Well, Andy McSmith, your book, Strange People I Have Known, is out now. I can thoroughly recommend it. Thank you, Andy McSmith. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Andy McSmith there. Well, that's all for this week's Chopper's Politics listeners. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I have. It's certainly been a varied and eclectic listen. Thank you to my guests, Sir Charles Walker MP, Miriam Cates MP, and of course, Andy McSmith. Thank you to my producers, Louise Wells and Giles Gear. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a rating and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That really helps other people find this show. For more insights into the wacky world of Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. 
It arrives straight into your email inbox every weekday. And the link for that will be in the show notes for this episode. And don't forget to read my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column out on Fridays at 7pm online and in Saturday's Daily Telegraph. And as always, please do buy a copy of The Telegraph if you can. Until next time, though, cheerio!